I said in last week's sermon, one of the important themes of 1 Peter is that we can have a kind of deep and abiding joy or, or happiness that isn't contingent upon external circumstances in our lives. And as we recall, the people to whom Peter is writing are suffering in many ways. They're suffering persecution and even death. Um, They're going through difficult trials. And in spite of this, Peter writes to encourage them that joy is possible. Joy is a reality. And in today's scripture, he begins to talk about what we Christians need to do in order to know this kind of joy. And he begins by emphasizing the importance of using our minds, loving God with our minds. And and the most important way we do that is by centering our lives on God's word. As I say in this sermon, my own denomination, the United Methodist Church, has gotten itself in hot water right now, in part because we have failed to take seriously the authority of Scripture. I'm going to read today's scripture, which comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 21. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Much to my parents' horror, my best friend in 8th and ninth grade was this kid named Jason. My parents were horrified because during the course of those two years, Jason became a punk rocker. There was a period of time, a brief period of time in my high school when punk rock fashions and hairstyles and clothing were very popular and Jason got into it big time. In fact, Jason got a mohawk. Not a a mohawk, but a real-life mohawk, and he even dyed his mohawk orange. He wore safety pins in his ears, and and he he wore these ripped clothes, and and, uh, he had a 
fashionably torn blue jean jacket. And on the back of the jacket were these words painted on. Non-conformists unite. Non-conformists unite. He became famous or infamous around the high school for this slogan, which he eventually spray-painted on the wall, <laughs> the outside wall of, uh, of, of the school, for which uh, he was suspended. Everyone knew him around the school as that non-conformist Unite kid, and I was known as the friend <laughs> of the non-conformist Unite kid. Regardless, Jason apparently failed to see the irony of that statement, non-conformists unite. It's like, it's like Jason was saying, hey, all you non-conformists, why don't we get together and form a social club? <laughs> non-conformists conform! <laughs> Which just goes to show how difficult it is to be a true non-conformist. I mean, going along to get along is much less lonely than being a true nonconformist. All, all the kids in my high school who listened to Prince and Van Halen and wore polo shirts with the collars turned up, they were much more popular. They had many more friends. In today's scripture, the Apostle Peter gives four commands in these verses. One of them is, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. There are three other commands. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, i.e. the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's number two. Verse 15, be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's three. And then verse 17. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Four commands. Why is it important that we follow these four commands? Because, as I said last week when I introduced this sermon series on 1 Peter, the most important theme in this letter is, is a theme that couldn't be more relevant for our lives. Because this letter addresses the question, how can I be truly happy in life? How can I be satisfied in life? How can I be fulfilled in life? How can I know true joy in life, regardless of whatever I happen to be going through in my life right now? Peter is writing to a group of Christians, after all, who were experiencing intense and violent persecution. Some were even facing possible death and martyrdom, all because of their Christian faith. I mean, that, that's in addition to the, the routine suffering and hardship that they experienced, not as middle-class Americans living in the 21st century, but as mostly poor people, even many slaves living in the first century. Can you imagine? He compares the, the trials that these Christians are facing to, to gold 
that's being uh, put through a fiery furnace in order to refine it, to purify it, to make it, uh, to make it stronger, to make it more precious. We can be confident, Peter says, that God is using all the bad stuff that these believers are facing. He's using it to turn them into better, more faithful, and stronger Christians. But, in the meantime, while they're going through this suffering, Peter says, something amazing is happening. They are experiencing joy. They are experiencing deep and lasting happiness. Listen to verse 6. In this, in what? In this inheritance that, that our Lord is, has prepared for you in heaven. In this, you now rejoice. When do you rejoice? You rejoice now. He goes on to say in verse 8, you rejoice now with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Don't you want that? Don't you, don't you need some inexpressible joy in your life right now? I certainly do. I mean, let's put things in perspective. We're not like the, the Christians that Peter is writing to. We're probably not experiencing any persecution to speak of. And certainly, thank God, we're not experiencing martyrdom or death you know, because of our Constitution and our First Amendment rights. And yet, if you're like me, you still have a, enough hardship and suffering and trials which can easily knock you off balance and keep you from being as happy and joyful as God wants us to be. See, we usually view the trials that we face as interruptions to our happiness. We, we usually think that, that, that hardship and suffering and, and happiness and joy are, are mutually exclusive. If you have one, you don't have the other. For example, we might think something like this. I can be happy so long as I still have a job next week. I can be happy so long as my team wins this Saturday. I can be happy so long as she'll say yes when I ask her to go to the prom. I can be happy so long as I don't have to have hip replacement surgery in a couple of weeks. I can be happy so long as my kid is able to keep that Hope Scholarship next semester. I can be happy so long as our church is able to pay its apportionments. Oh wait, that's me. <laughs> I can be happy so long as my marriage is okay. I can be happy so long as that biopsy comes back negative. Notice that the Apostle Peter is telling us, no, you can be happy. I mean deeply happy, inexpressibly joyful, no matter what is going on in your life. And it won't depend on, on external circumstances. That, that's what I need. But I feel like God's word is judging me this morning because far too often, I let my happiness depend on what's going on around me. Which is why I need to obey these four commands that Peter gives us. And, and you do 
as well. Because Peter is telling us what we need to do in order to have this kind of inexpressible joy. But before we get to those commands, and I'm afraid we're not going to get to many in today's sermon, we need to notice something that verse 13 says. Verse 13 begins with this small but important word, therefore. Therefore. The therefore at the beginning of verse 13, like the therefore that we find so often throughout the letters of the New Testament, means that everything that follows the therefore is the logical response to what has come before it. In other words, as a result of everything else that Peter has been saying to to these churches, they now need to do these things as a result. And what has Peter been telling these churches to which he is writing? In 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, he has given them a beautiful, concise summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has been telling them about all that God had had already done for them. Before the foundation of the world, Peter tells them, God already knew and loved you. God loved you so much, he wanted to rescue you from your sins so that you could be with him for eternity. God had a a plan for you, for your life. You were a part of God's plan forever. So he called you and he gave you the grace to respond to that call. And when he did, he gave you a new birth, which meant you were now a part of God's family. You were now a a daughter or a son of God. And he gave you power to live your life in a new way. And as if that weren't enough, he's guarding this treasure for you in heaven. And he's protecting you right now so that you'll be able to receive it one day. Either when you die or when Christ comes again. Peter says, this is a sure thing. This is your foundation for hope. So you need to hope fully in this grace that's going to be yours in eternity. My point is, before Peter tells us what we have to do, he's already told us what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Salvation, he says, is a completely free gift paid for by what? The precious blood of his son, Jesus. Our salvation is all grace from first to last, not what we do. We can't do anything to earn it, to make ourselves worthy of it. But you might say, Yes, but, but we still have to receive it, and, and, and that's something, right? And that's true. We, we do have to receive it. But receiving God's gift of eternal life, it, it, that's not much. It's practically nothing. As many of you know, I, I keep a blog, and I have a friend in Texas whom I love dearly. He's Baptist, but I still love him. And he frequently comments on my blog posts, and he's, he's often arguing, me, arguing with me about this point, about free 
grace. I said during the baptism earlier that this gift of grace is offered without price. Remember, we, we believe that as, as Methodists, and, and so do most Christians. But, but my friend Tom argues with me on this point. It's not that he doesn't believe that God does most of the work, but we still, we still have to do something. We have to do some things to contribute to our salvation. Recently, he said, look at Zacchaeus, the tax collector. It was only after he said he was going to give back all this money that he had defrauded other people out of that Jesus said to him, Today, today, uh, you, uh, you know salvation. Today, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus promised to do these things, and then Jesus said he was saved, right? And I said, yes, but, but I'll match Zacchaeus with the thief on the cross. He's nailed to a cross. He literally can't do anything. To, to, to make himself worthy of, of, of this gift of salvation that Jesus gives him. Or the paralytic with the four friends, remember him? I mean, he just kind of lies there. He doesn't do anything. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Remember the woman caught in adultery? I mean, she doesn't do anything. And Jesus forgives her and gives her the gift of salvation. And Zacchaeus doesn't prove my friend's point anyway. Zacchaeus' resolve to give back all of this money that he stole was a sure sign of a saving faith that Zacchaeus already possessed. See, my friend is worried, and I understand this. He's worried that if we preachers preach too much about how grace is completely free, it'll lead to a kind of... Easy believism, which means a kind of faith that doesn't require repentance or, or good works. And, and look, I know easy believism certainly exists, unfortunately, in the church. But when it does, I would say that the problem there is not free grace or saving grace that's offered too cheaply. The problem is that these people haven't received saving grace to begin with. That, that's why Paul warns us, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And, and you test yourselves by looking at your life and say, do I have these works? Am I, am I living a life? Uh, am I bearing fruit that's, that's in keeping with repentance? And if I'm not, then that's a sign of trouble. That's a sign, perhaps, that, that I don't... Maybe I never had saving faith to begin with. Or, or maybe I had it and then lost it somewhere along the way. So test yourself and see. We all need to test ourselves and see. Because the therefore, in verse 13, means that if we do have saving faith, then... These behaviors that Peter describes in today's scripture will naturally follow. We will naturally want to do these things that the Lord, through his word, is calling us to do. And including the commands to set your hope fully on 
grace that will be ours in heaven. To not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. To to be holy in all of our conduct. So, let's just look at the first command. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice in that verse this strong emphasis on our minds, using our minds. In order to set our hope fully on God's grace, we have to use our minds. Paul says something similar in Romans 12 when he talks about nonconformity. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. This emphasis on the mind would have made perfect sense to the people to whom Peter is writing. The people who are in the midst of suffering. If you're you're enduring violent persecution, you, you can't simply depend on your feelings. How you're feeling. Because your feelings are telling you things are really, really bad. Things might even be hopeless if you're just listening to your feelings. Now, I I love good feelings, and I love when I feel like everything is great, and the the Lord loves me, and the Lord's with me, and and I have full confidence in that, and I I can lean on my feelings, rely on my feelings, but my feelings will let me down. My emotions will let me down sooner or later. So I need something deeper than just how I feel. I need something in here. And that's what... Peter is saying, we need something in here. We need to think things through. We need theology more than anything. We need to know and understand and be able to apply to our lives the truth of God's word. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, is God's word one of the most important parts of your life. Is it? Are, 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 you, are you reading the, and studying the Bible regularly, even every day? You should be. And you may say, well, I don't have time for that. Oh, come on. You, you, you know that's not true, right? You have time for, for so many things. We have time for so many things in our lives that we do every day. We, we have time to watch Netflix We have time to read about our friends, what they're doing, and what they're arguing about on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, We we have time to keep up with the Braves or the Falcons or the Bulldogs, right? We have time to drive our kids back and forth to any number of extracurricular activities every day. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with doing any of that. But I am saying that every single one of these things is less important than God's word. These are lesser things compared to, compared to this bread of heaven which our Lord uh, wants to feed us with through his word. So, of course, we have time for God's word. We have time to make the Bible a priority in our lives Our reason for so often ignoring it must lie elsewhere. Do we believe it? Do we believe God?
God's word. Now, I, I bring this up reluctantly, in part because uh, my boss is here, and I want to make sure I get it right, but, but I bring it up reluctantly because the whole issue is surrounded by pain and sorrow and divisiveness on all sides, and, and, and I hate to think that I could say something that would contribute to, to someone who is already experiencing the pain of this. But despite what you might have heard, the main question that our denomination, the United Methodist Church, is struggling to answer right now, and you might have heard that just this past week, the Judicial Council, the Supreme Court of our church, ruled that the lesbian bishop who was appointed in California, that that appointment was wrong, and, and, and that it was against what we say we believe. The most important question that we're facing as a denomination has really has nothing to do with questions of sex and marriage, however important those questions are. The main question is, can we trust God's word, or can't we? We know what it says. Do we believe it? And if we don't believe it, why not? It's often said in these arguments that we often have in our denomination that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality or issues pertaining to the LGBTQ community. If it were so important, why doesn't Jesus mention it anywhere? Why, why are we threatening to divide the denomination over something that Jesus never even and I'm sorry, I don't think that's a good argument, in part because of what Peter says in today's scripture. I mean, notice what he says in verse 11 about the prophets who wrote so much of the Old Testament. He says, this is a lengthy quote, but I'll get to the important part. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He says that these prophets were writing uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ within them. Now, we can apply, and we ought to imply, the same principle to the rest of the inspired writers of our Old and New Testaments. The Spirit of Christ spoke through these writers, guiding them as they wrote. Would this same Jesus Christ say something to us today which contradicts what he told us 2,000 years ago or longer? I just, I just can't comprehend that. And you might say, along with so many other people in our culture, but I don't understand why the Bible says that we need to do this and not do these other things. To which I would ask, why do you expect to always understand why? The why of what God tells us in his word. You know how young children like to ask the question, why? For me, I was the worst. <laughs> I mean, when I was a, a three or four-year-old kid, we had a we had a mall near.
near our home, North Lake Mall, and it had this place called Farrell's, which was this ice, this super deluxe ice cream parlor. Whenever I went to Farrell's, I always wanted to say, hey, Mom, can we, I mean, to North Lake, uh, my mom, I'd always want to say to her, hey, Mom, can we go to Farrell's? No. Why? <laughs> you know, and just I was, why, 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 all the time, and my mom liked to give me that most unsatisfying answer of all. You know what it is. What? Because I said so. And I made a deliberate effort when my children were young never to say that. Maybe I did. I don't, I don't remember saying that. But whether I like it or not, we've got to admit that because I said so is often a pretty good answer for a parent to say. Because what they're really saying when they say that is, you're not mature enough, old enough, smart enough, wise enough to understand or appreciate the answer. So for now, you're just going to have to trust me when I say, because I said so. You trust me that I know what's best and that you don't. And if that's true for the relationship between a human parent and a child, how much more true is it between our Heavenly Father and us, our, our perfect, all-knowing, all-wise Heavenly Father, and us sinful, fallible, very imperfect and limited children. God says in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So, no matter what we're dealing with in life, will we trust God's word? I hope so. Because you, you know what the most important thing that God's word is teaches us is, right? The most important thing that God's Word tells us is that in the fullness of time, God sent His Son Jesus, who Himself was God, into the world. Why? Because God loved you and me so much that He was not willing to live for eternity without us, without giving us an opportunity to accept for ourselves God's gift of salvation. Now, who's eligible for this gift? Is it just the super holy among us? <laughs> More often than not, Jesus said in the Gospels that the people who already thought they were holy, they, they're not, they're not going to make it anyway. Because you see, in order to qualify for this gift of eternal life, you have to be a sinner, <laughs> right? And it doesn't matter how bad your sins are, it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Every single one of those sins, Paul says, was nailed to the cross of his son, Jesus. It's as if, Paul says, you had a, you had a note or a loan, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, what? Uh, you had a, a statement that, that gave, like a credit card receipt that gave your, your debt to God, showed what you owed God. And, and what each of us owes God because of our sins is, well, it's infinitely more than we're able to pay. And Paul says in one of his letters that it's like, it's like God has taken that and, and just wiped it out, erased it. 
because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. So, are you eligible for salvation? Yes, you are. Does it matter what you've done in the past? No, it doesn't. Because every single one of our sins is forgiven because of what Christ did. All we have to do, as I said earlier, is to receive this gift. God's not going to force it on you if you don't want it. But I suspect that there are some people here this morning, even, who've never received that gift. And I hate to think, I hate to think that, that you're going to leave this place kind of, you know, wanting it, you know, wanting to know more about this and, and, and wanting to experience this gift of forgiveness and eternal life and salvation for yourself. But you're going to leave this place not having dealt with it. And, you know, there's no guarantees. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring for any of us. All we know for sure is we have this moment right now. So my invitation to you is if you are ready, you've never received Christ as your Savior and Lord, but you feel, you feel that tug. That's, that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is beckoning you to come and accept for yourself this gift of salvation. I want to invite you to do that this morning. I want you to leave this place with the confidence, with the assurance of knowing that you're saved. And that that inheritance that Christ has already prepared for you, it's waiting for you in heaven. And it's yours. I want you to, I want you to, I want you to have that. I want you to look forward to that. I want you to, to live with that kind of certain hope. So, if that's a decision that you need to make, I invite you to make it this morning as we, as we sing this last uh, invitation song. I'm going to be standing up here. Uh, maybe... Maybe, like Clarissa, you've been visiting our church for a while and, and you want to become part of this local church. Put down your roots here. Love and serve Jesus here in this local community. Well, you can do that as well. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll join us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 and a traditional service at 11.